0: Welcome back to the University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Wilcox, communications generalist here at U of M Extension. In this episode, we're talking about soil testing myths. We have three members of Extension's nutrient management team here with us today. Can you each give us a quick introduction?
1: My name is Daniel Kaiser. I'm a nutrient management specialist at the University of Minnesota located at the St. Paul campus. Uh, One of my key areas of research is in soil testing. So this is kind of an area that I've got a fair amount of experience with.
2: Hi, I'm Carl Rosen, soil scientist at the University of Minnesota in the Department of Soil, Water, and Climate. And my area of expertise is nutrient management, and I also have experience in soil testing.
3: Brad Carlson, I'm an extension educator at the University of Minnesota Extension. work out of our regional office in Mankato statewide. Uh, A lot of focus on water quality issues, uh, and so that's had me uh, working on nitrogen a lot over the last several years.
0: Brad, can you give us some context to the soil testing discussion and why it's important that we talk about it?
3: You know, Jack, over the years, uh, throughout my career, it's been clear that there's a lot of farmers that consider soil science to be uh, sort of an intimidating or highly technical topic. And it can be. Uh, And I think we realize that for most farmers, there's so many things to keep track of these days as far as, uh, uh, you know, seed genetics and, and herbicide programs and so forth. And so frequently what ends up happening in the soil side is is that's one area that that a large percentage of farmers choose to just simply go external for their information because it just it seems easier to, to focus in other areas. And so we hope, uh, you know, the fact you're listening to us today, that we're one of the sources that you go to for that information. We appreciate that. But there's obviously other places that are also uh, providing information and and one of the things i've been concerned about over the years is the fact that that some of this stuff um it's It's technical, and occasionally, I think it gets over uh, it gets presented to farmers in an overly technical way to the point where it becomes confusing. And so i I get concerned that it's being used to sell products or push information that's uh, really not research based and and uh, frequently can just end up costing farmers a lot of extra money in the long run.
0: Let's talk about myth number one. The Malik three test is a better test for farmers to consider.
1: Well, certainly uh, that's one question I get from a particular lot of state agencies, because across the country, I think um, one thing a lot of our, particularly the NRCS, would like to see is a singular soil test being used in all states across the country. And the Malik 3 if you look at it, um, you look at it of all the options we have. I mean, Minnesota right now, we recommend either the Bray P1 uh, or the Olson test, as we have a significant amount of information really to back those up in terms of that they they predict crop response. So the Malik 3, um, you know, what it's meant really to do is to be a test that you could use across soils, particularly uh, going from acidic to calcareous soils. And there's some advantages to that. Uh, the main issue, though, is we haven't been able to get it to work to all the soils in Minnesota. So that's really the, the thing I stress to a lot of growers when we start talking about this is that we need to have backing research that shows that we can correlate the soil test to crop response. So we can if we're looking at a relative yield or deviation from maximum yield, that there's some relationship to it. So, I mean, I think there's some there's some utility there that where it could work. I mean, my my main fear, though, is in particularly the western part of Minnesota, should we recommend this? So a lot of labs are going to go to it because it's um, it's a more high throughput test that uh, we can't necessarily use it across all soils. So then you're still looking at running two tests. And in the end, I don't think it's really gonna save us anything. And then the other thing with the Malik-3 is with any soil test, particularly with phosphorus, if you look at how the test, the extraction is run, then how the analysis is done at the end point is you can get different results. So, I mean, you have to have that correlation data for if you change one little thing, it means you I mean you can use about any extraction solution you want to use as long as you have the correlation data behind it. It's fine, but it, it it's not going to give you the same number, so you can't use the same recommendations for the test. So that's really the main issue I have with it. And it, while it would be a good one in terms of cost for most labs, it's that prediction factor that really worries me the most.
3: And I think historically uh we have we did a little bit of a disturb, disservice years ago by uh by presenting results from these tests in pounds per acre A lot of farmers then got the impression that's how much P I've got per acre, how much K I've got per acre, and therefore how much do I need? When in reality, that's not what we're showing. I think way back at the very beginning of my career, almost 30 years ago, uh, we changed those uh, to just simply be reported in parts per million. I think that's one of the big myths is a lot of farmers do think that, that that's what they're finding out when they do a soil test. But in reality, it's just an index. It's how much of that nutrient was extracted in the laboratory. And there's lots of different methods that can be used for that extraction. Uh, Years and years ago, land grant institutions across the country ran basic research evaluating these methods and determined which method was best in each state. Uh, And there's a wide range of that across the U.S., depending on soil types and conditions. And so based on that approved method, then from there, uh, research was conducted establishing critical levels for these these uh, for soil test values as well as predicted crop response when you apply fertilizer. and so anytime you're using a, non-standard soil test you have to realize that that there's not a a backbone of information of research to stand on uh regarding uh what's going to happen if I use this number to to uh, base a fertility plan on and and so you know from that standpoint again we need to get across what you're getting back is not the pounds per acre it's an it's a really an index of the extractable amount of that nutrient on that soil test report
2: yeah and and just to follow up on. Uh, that, Brad. Um, yeah, the, the Malik test is just one of many tests that can be used. It's a, what we call more or less a, a, a universal extractant. And the one advantage of that is that you can analyze all the essential nutrients at once. Uh, particularly phosphorus, potassium, and some of the micronutrients. That's the one advantage of it. But you run into the same problems, as Dan said, with uh, high calcareous soils. It will often fail on that, similar to the Bray test. And so uh, you're still going to end up, uh, in most cases, needing a uh, a separate analysis on those, those particular soils. The uh, the other problem with the malic is that uh, as and also as Dan mentioned um, the uh, the way that it is actually analyzed will affect the result that you get particularly for phosphorus, and so uh, if you're using the malic test in a, a soil testing laboratory, you're going to use a n- different analysis than you would in most cases for the Bray and the Olsen. And so those numbers will need to be recalibrated um, if, you use, uh, if you use the Malik in that particular case. So it has uh, it can be used. It's used a lot in the eastern part of the US now. It's becoming more popular. But again, you need to understand what the issues are uh if if you choose to uh to to use that particular test.
1: Yeah, and I want to follow up on one thing that Carl said. That's one of the, the issues that the malic three can fall apart at times and it's somewhat like the bray um the bray actually in high ph soils particularly that have high carbonate if you're above 5% calcium carbonate equivalency a lot of times it'll neutralize the bray so what you'll end up with is almost a water extraction which will hardly pull any phosphorus out of the soil in some of those uh, the malic actually tends to go the other way in some of those soils and i don't exactly know what the um what's going on behind it, um, why it does it, but it actually will overextract. So you might actually end up with a situation where it tells you you have sufficient p- uh, phosphorus in those areas, and you may not. So it's it's mainly an issue with phosphorus. If you're dealing with potassium, the recommended procedure is the ammonium acetate procedure we use here in Minnesota and in many other states. It'll give you the same numbers. If you look at southern Minnesota for phosphorus, um, you know, if you use the colorimetric procedure, which is what we use for the Bray, um, I'm not going to get into the technical details of that other than that. uh, If you look at it, it will extract about the same amount, maybe about a part per million higher or two. I mean, it's pretty similar. So if I'm dealing with a soil, um, you know, say pH of seven or less, you probably could use, if it's the color metric, you could use it the same as what our current recommendations are. I mean, so given, you know, it's plus minus maybe one or two PPM. The issue with a lot of labs, they run it what we call um, through an ICP, which analyzes everything all at once. And the issue when it does that is that it will read some of the organic phosphorus that's extracted. So what you'll tend to see in many cases with labs is you'll get about a 20% higher value than you would with the color metric. Now that's one of the things. Now, if you switch labs, you know, say you had a bray run and you're now switching to a Malik three and you all of a sudden get higher values, it's probably because of how they're they're analyzing it at the end. So that's one of the things that um, you kind of get concerned there. That's one of the my main points before is that you need a different correlation for it. So the the numbers aren't going to be the same more often than not so it's mainly an issue with phosphorus again potassium is the same and then micronutrients are a mess um you know the zinc levels kind of correlate with one another the malic 3 tends to give higher levels than the dtpa procedure that we recommend uh, but if you look at a lot of the data I was on a, a regional project with several states in the north central region and there's almost no correlation between the the copper manganese and a, a few of the other tests that are commonly with the DTPA and the Malic 3 So, you know, fortunately, we generally don't recommend using any of that because we don't have a documented need for many of those other micros. But if you're running them, um, realize the fact that you just cannot use the same set of guidelines across tests. So you've you've got to look for them specifically. Uh, the other thing, too, is if you're getting a Malic 3 make sure it's a Malic 3 I had a grower a couple of years ago and sent some samples out on the cheap, he wanted to get a good deal. So we sent him out a state and they sent him back a Malik 1, which is a completely different test from the Malik 3. It's kind of like the Bray P1 that we recommend and the Bray P2, they they analyze, they they extract different amounts. And he wanted me to kind of help him come up with some interpretations. And you know, based on the data I've seen, there's absolutely no relationship between the Malik 1 and some of our other tests. So that's kind of the issue with it. It It's better off trying to get something or if you're analyzing soil, do it re, within the region you're in. So hopefully then you can make it a lot easier to get yourself some recommendations in the end.
2: Yeah, I think the, the bottom line is that uh, you need to know what the test is that you're running and you have to be sure that uh, you know that there's good correlation with, with what those numbers actually mean. And- yeah
1: in some labs will actually um i've heard of it that they'll run a Malik 3 icp and they'll re-report the data based on some in-house correlations as a Brayer and olson which there's some danger there yeah. with that because you're you're getting a lot of assumptions with some of that so you know i'm i'm not outing any specific labs with that but um you know that's why i always you know say it's really you know good to have if you're running samples at least to do it uh, regionally or try to stay within the region you're in because the labs are generally going to run the recommended tests for that are more applicable for, applicable for the soils you have
0: myth number 2 i can predict my nitrogen requirement with the cation exchange capacity test
1: well, the the cation exchange
3: uh, number is, is a part of the uh, soil test report. Farmers have long seen that number and thought, "Well, what do I do with that?" Uh, really, it's it's an an index that that correlates very strongly to the amount of clay in your soil. So, clay particles are negatively charged, and therefore, the the more clay there is, the more ability there is to hold cations. Uh, in in the southern United States. This is a this is kind of a big deal because when clay particles weather, they lose those exchange sites. So if you get, uh, for instance, down in Mississippi or Arkansas, you can actually have a lot of clay in the soil and not have the ability to hold uh, cations or or have a lot of soil fertility because of, of the nature of the clay in the soil. In Minnesota, this isn't a thing. Uh, we actually have separate nitrogen recommendations just simply based on soil texture. And and this is a case where I think things are really being overthought. Uh, uh, you know, as far as the, this research, or I keep having people throw this out, you know, well, the, the cation exchange t- capacity tells us how much nitrogen the soil can hold. Well, tell me what that means, because... Um, so you apply anhydrous ammonia, and it, it turns into the ammonium form. That's a cation. So if it doesn't hold it, uh, what are you saying? That there's cation leaching? Uh, it's, it's, not, it's, an, it's an ion. It's not going off into the atmosphere. Um, and not only that, but the uh, the nitrogen cycle is a real thing. The ammonium turns itself into nitrate, and that's nitrate's not a cation, and it makes no difference what the cation exchange capacity is. Once the nitrogen is in in the uh, in the anion form, when it's when it's a nitrate, and and so uh, it, this just really isn't isn't a factor as far as how we manage nitrogen. You you really need to concentrate on the four R's in terms of uh, what's most appropriate for application timing to prevent loss. Uh, and so particularly on these sandier soils, we look at splitting the application or and using multiple splits. Uh, you know from that standpoint if you have soils that are prone to, to saturation or a lot of water movement through them you're better off moving the application closer to the time of planting or the time of of nitrogen use by the plant uh but but realistically the cation exchange capacity of the soil has no bearing on on uh, uh either how much nitrogen uh, you can apply in the in the soil or what you know potentially what the crop needs that's completely independent uh it's just it's just again I think it's an area where we've, uh, some people have just decided to get real technical. And and I think it's just being done to, to confuse uh, farmers in a lot of cases.
1: Well, and that's one of the things too, if you look at a lot of the early information regarding this, I mean, the ma- majority of it or all of it actually was geared towards anhydrous. So if you're looking at any of your other nitrogen sources, I mean, I don't think there's a whole lot of bearing there. Urea is completely different. You apply urea, it's a neutral molecule. It doesn't, isn't held on your soil and it won't be potentially held until it converts to ammonium. And, and, you know, at that point, if it, you know, things are going well, it's going to essentially convert over to nitrate relatively quickly. So, you know, you got to kind of consider that, that, you know, these things were developed at one point in time or somebody developed them. I, I This is one that we've had some regional discussions on it. We have not been able to figure out where exactly that information came from. Where is CEC times 10? Where did that come from? Uh, because we cannot find any literature that has those values in it. I think a lot of, I mean, maybe where it came from is a anhydrous study where they were looking at it, essentially the increase in the amount of ammonium in the soil based on after application. And then somebody just assumed that that's what it can hold. So what it does do a good job telling you though is areas where you need to split or potentially your timing. So we know our lower CEC soils we want to avoid applications far ahead of when the crop's going to need it. But in terms of telling you how much to apply, I mean, Carl can kind of speak to this. I mean, the low CEC soils on some of these sands that you know we deal with that the rates are you can apply are much higher than I think what they say CEC times 10 in a single application. But you just need to make that application at a point in time when that crop is actively growing, taking up nitrogen.
2: Yeah, that's right, Dan. Um, Yes, sandy soils have low CECs. Um, We do not recommend large amounts of nitrogen on there. So that does kind of uh, play into the cation exchange uh, relationship. But uh, it really does not tell you how much to apply at any one time. We uh, more or less go with the type of crop. And uh, again, uh, if you're on that low CEC soil to apply it during the time of active growth, And that's when it when it should be. And so also kind of to reiterate what Brad said, uh, if you have a a high cation exchange soil, that usually means you have more clay. It's going to be more prone to saturation as well. So you might be losing nitrogen um, in other ways, not just by leaching. You can lose it by um, by uh, denitrification. And so uh, just because you have a high CEC and you apply this, this nitrogen doesn't mean it's not subject to loss. It, it can be lost.
1: And I think if you look at the calculations, too, the soil will hold more. Um, nitrogen, you know, it would technically hold more than what you're applying on, you know, a, a reasonable application anyway. It just, I mean, that in terms of this rule of thumb, I, we don't know where it came from. And the, the interesting one to me, you know, Brad and I were at a meeting think last year and there was a grower that was growing um some corn on sands and you know they were actually making their nitrogen recommended their rates based on cec and i that's one that i don't know where exactly that one came from as well so normally what the the myth is is that you can it's it's the holding capacity and not exactly the rate predict that can be predicted but um just one of the things that you know, I really wouldn't be making adjustments based on that. The thing I guess to think about is it's a good proxy for soil texture, and soil texture generally dictates, particularly timing, when we start talking about the four R's, and somewhat rate. But timing is kind of the big one in terms of what the consideration needs to be in terms of a nitrogen application.
3: And I think the last point is with anhydrous ammonia, you know what. Because of the anhydrous nature, what it's looking for is water. It's not worrying about what your soil is. When you when it gets let go under the, the soil surface, it's immediately looking for water. And so you're more likely, if you're worried about that coming up through the air or coming back out, you're worried about being too dry or potentially with your uh, the, the slots not closing behind the anhydrous knife, uh, neither of those factors have anything to do with the CEC of the soil.
0: Myth three. K-base saturation is the better way to predict
2: potassium. Normally, we uh, base our potassium uh, recommendations on the amount that's extracted. The amount that extra- that's extracted is expressed as parts per million. This can be converted to um, uh, an equivalent or milliequivalents per 100 grams, which is what the uh, saturation is based on and uh the cation uh exchange capacity is what we call the total amount of cations in that soil that the soil can hold on to the base k base base saturation is what percentage of that uh uh, cation exchange uh, capacity is um is occupied by potassium so uh there are recommendations that have been made on that it usually is hard to adjust your base saturation to any large degree. Um, It also comes into uh, the myth about having an ideal cation uh, saturation ratio between potassium, calcium, and magnesium. And trying to adjust those gets very difficult and usually is not related to uh, yield in, in, in most cases. So our recommendations are primarily based on the amount there in the soil, in parts per million, as opposed to equivalents per 100 grams, or the amount that's occupied uh, relative to the total amount of uh, potassium in the soil. So it's not a very good predictor in most cases. And if you start trying to adjust these ratios, it can be very expensive. And so... Um, We don't use it in our recommendations. There are some labs that report it, but they'll also report report parts per million. And in most cases, the recommendation is based on parts per million potassium, not on the base saturation of potassium.
1: So this is one of the things that, you know, that kind of bothers me, particularly, and I think as Brad's saying, some of that complicated nature that, you know, people view soil science to be is when the lab, you get these standard packages where, they'll run everything in the kitchen sink with it. And a lot of times if you run CEC, they're going to also give you a base saturation value on your report. And I mean, a lot of growers, I I get this with our soil testing lab report too. There's extra information on there that you just do not need to be looking at. And um, it's it's amazing to me, this K-base saturation, how much legs it tends to have and how it tends to come and go. It's been hanging around here for probably the last, I would say 10 years, I hear it off and on um and it's one of the things that as carl said there just really isn't a good way to push the needle i mean i think the the myth here is that you need on some of our high clay soils a two percent k base saturation you just really hard to get that to move with the amount of uh, other nutrients that are in the soil you've got to put a lot of potassium on More than what it's going to be economically feasible or where it's going to be economically justifiable for the crop. And I've been starting to look at some of my data um, where we can get some CEC values to look at the base saturation just to see where it is. And if you look at the majority of the data, I've got a lot of non responsive sites that are anywhere from one to a 2% K base saturation. And that's what a lot of people see. If you look at a lot of the research around that, there just is no relationship to it. And if you really dig into this one. I know Carl might be able to back me up, but I only think there's a couple papers, maybe two out there that really talk about this. One is out of Missouri. There was some work done. That's probably been 50 years ago or more, and then something out of New Jersey. And a lot of times you look at this data, it was on um, sandier soils where it's a lot easier to adjust some of these values. And what they were reporting essentially is their, what their optimal yield was, and then what these satura- these ratios were, which really isn't a prediction of anything. Uh, when you, you come down to it, it's just more of a saying that, that this is what it was when we had high yield, but it doesn't necessarily say that that's what you need for high yield.
2: Yeah, that's right, Dan. A lot of this is based on research that was, um, originally developed, uh, as Dan said, in Missouri and, and New Jersey, and this is back in the forties. Um, that's where, it, that's how old this is and it continues to be used. Um, but the, uh, Again, you need this calibration and correlation. there 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 really isn't any uh, evidence to show that it it's going to work. Um, and our our methods of using um, experimental field results uh, and correlating that with our soil test and calibrating it with our soil tests is is the way to go. And we just don't see that uh, using uh, base saturation potassium-based saturation for potassium recommendations. Myth four, I need to
0: run an analysis of all micronutrients.
1: So this goes back to a point I just made is, you know, looking at these standard packages, many of these labs have, they are running the Maelik-3. A lot of times that you'll be running all these micros. And I think that's one of the arguments for running the Maelik-3. If you're going to do it, you might as well get all this data so look at it. The problem with all the data is is all, not, not all of it really has any meaningful value to it. And that's one of the, the issues. If we don't have a good correlation or any good response trials for micronutrients, getting a value back really is pointless because a lot of times you'll get a number back. Maybe a lab will report it as low, which I don't exactly know where they get their, their, their information from. The saying that it's low, um, you know, really doesn't mean anything. And micronutrients really are the tricky ones because we know that zinc, particularly in corn and dry beans across the state, there there is a need. We know that. And so if you're looking at one to get, I mean, I would always recommend, you know, maybe getting zinc and looking at it. You know, most of the time, if you're above a half part per million um, with the DTPA, you're generally not going to see a response to it, but um, it is the one to look at. But iron in our soils, I mean, our soils have plenty of iron. That number really doesn't matter manganese and copper um that can matter specifically copper but a lot of times we see copper recommendations made on organic soils and not on mineral soils and you can't take the same set of recommendations or the same set of values you would where you'd recommend applications across the two of them it just it you look at it in terms of it they're just two different animals with it So it's one of the things. I mean, do you need it? I mean, yeah, it's interesting getting some of that data, but you've got to really look at what makes the more sense in terms of the crop you're growing, what information you need, and not get any more than that because it just really causes too much confusion for most growers. And that's when I start getting questions on on what they need to do because of the results they've gotten back.
2: Yeah. And and for some micronutrients, just the simple pH measurement might tell you more about potential availability than the actual number that you get uh, with a micronutrient extraction. For example, iron. Um, If you're in alkaline, highly alkaline and calcareous soils, that's all you really need to know that you're probably gonna run into some iron issues, particularly if you're growing uh, soybeans. Uh, The other micronutrients, um, manganese and and copper, uh, again, mostly are important on organic soils. High organic matter soils uh, that might be a, a place where you would want to test there, and uh, uh, high pH will also indicate potential uh, manganese problems as well. So those those are things that that we look at in the test and getting the, an actual number may or may not mean anything for for some of these tests, and and pH may may actually be more important.
3: Dan, you've done a ton of work with sulfur. I know when we started, you were starting to roll out a lot of our sulfur recommendations, which kind of changed or was a departure from what had happened through, you know, really, I guess, throughout most of our cropping history through the late 90s, uh, you kind of found that the sulfur test was just really not a good predictor of of uh, whether we needed sulfur, that it was tended to be a lot more situation-specific and soil-specific than the the soil test. Uh, Have we had any improvement on that sulfur test since then? Is it even worth doing, or do we need to just, farmers just need to still look at the situations where we need sulfur and, and go with that and not worry about the soil test?
1: Well, and that's one of the things, too. I was actually, Brad, you caught me. I was just going to mention this, too, that, um, you know, sulfur isn't a micro. So, it's one of the the first things on. They'd feel like at sulfur, calcium, magnesium. They're what we call secondary macronutrients. So, they're generally nutrients that um, are in the soil in enough quantity where we don't need to apply them. Sulfur, you can kind of, it's a little iffy because there's some soils we know that there's a need for it. But, The thing about sulfur is um, there is a standard test that we recommend. Uh, It's generally recommended for the north central region. Um, If I look at the three labs here in Minnesota, I look at MVTL in New Ulm, or I look at um, Agvice up in Benson um, versus our soil testing lab, all three run three different sulfur tests. So, you know, when you get a number back, that's one that it's interesting. Um, If I get a really high number back, a lot of times that kind of points me to a situation where we probably have free gypsum in the profile. But normally, if I look at a lot of my sites where we have responses or non responses, you see, you know, three, four, five, maybe six part per million, you see that range, and it really doesn't relate back at all to where that responses occur. I mean, initially, the um, the sulfur soil test, the recommendations were based on sandy soils, which it may work better there, um, because if you've got low organic matter, I mean, really, you're you're pool of sulfur is a lot lower and kind of what I recommend mostly to growers is to look at um, it's more situational I think we can predict just based on tillage and also on organic matter where we're going to see a, a sulfur response so if you're going to get something the organic matter is something you can get although I don't think you really need to do organic matter all that often uh, because you can you get a number back and a number really shouldn't change all that much with it but um, it's one of the things that I don't really recommend using any of that information because we just have not found a good correlation between the, the sulfur soil test you know i've never run all three i've compared all three on um, that that ag mvtl and in, in our lab are using and um, none of them are really any better at predicting responses than than the others so it's interesting i've had a site um, that was back around 2010 that we had a really strong sulfur response this was out in renville county And I looked at the the test out of our lab and the difference between the responsive and the non-responsive area was about one part per million. And all the labs will report data out to the nearest one part per million. So, you know, if you look at just an overall error there, there just isn't enough, um, there isn't enough uh, fine of a scale there to be able to test where you will and won't see a, a difference. So Again, it's one of those things I put as interesting, but not necessarily as effective. I mean, I'd recommend most growers, bare minimum, you get a phosphorus test, you get a potassium test, you want a pH, maybe a zinc. Those are probably the big four that you need. If you're going into a field for the first time, maybe you want an organic matter map just to see what those changes are. But the rest of it, um, you know, we really don't have anything built into our recommendation to use. So... You know, you can run all the micros, and that's kind of what the question here was, but or the myth here was, but, um, you know, it's just going to cause more confusion and probably more sales or things that there somebody's going to want to come and sell you based on your tests that are likely not going to be needed because there's really no documented evidence it is.
3: You know, earlier in my career, we were involved with, and and I know Dan, you spoke a couple of times. I can't remember Carl if we ever had you, but we had an organic crop stay. I think it's still going on uh, in Olaton, Minnesota, for uh, organic producers. And one of the one of the uh, nutrients that they just love is calcium. And we, but we just can't see a response. It's almost always based on testimonial and, and their experience and so forth. And there's really nothing about an organic production system that would, uh, that should be any different for crop response than a, than a, a, a conventional production system and it gets back to you know where i started this and and that is that that if we don't have soil tests that are correlated to some critical value in crop response they're just a number and they don't really mean anything and so so that's uh you know that's kind of where we're at with a lot of that stuff and and um you know, I, I've heard this kind of uh, couched as a uh, soul test. What do I really need? And then they come they come back and and tell you you need everything but the kitchen sink. Um that that's really that's just that's just a waste of money.
1: so it's one of the things that we have, too. you know, with the the having a smartphone or computer, it's really easy to find information on the internet. And I think the adage is that they don't put anything that's not true on the internet, right? I mean, it's just one of those things that um, that it's really easy to find if it's particularly if you're looking for something, find somebody that's got a similar opinion to you or back up whatever whatever thought you have in terms of, of what you've been hearing out there. And it's kind of one of those those things if I look at it, you know, we can really make this nutrient management thing overcomplicated with all the information you can have out here when it's it's generally simple. I mean you just have to make sure there's enough available nutrients out there. Most of the time NPK, you know, are our big ones, maybe sulfur then beyond that, I mean, the rest of it, it's if you're really looking at you're just really grasping at some very small yield increases that you're trying to pull out of it, um, other than maybe some isolated areas. So, you know, we try to do the I, I always kind of, you know, say that I really try to be the one to screw up so farmers don't have to to kind of look at this because you can really get pretty quick into getting um, increasing your costs. Just based on some of the information is out there when, um, you know, back to the basics approach is really a good thing to do, particularly when fertilizer prices are high.
2: Yeah. And, and if you look at the name micro, it just means that it need, it's needed in very small quantities. So uh, in terms of a, an acre basis, you're only taking up maybe ounces per acre, as opposed to something like your macronutrients, where you're looking at multiple pounds, um, tens to hundreds of pounds per acre, depending on the, the macronutrient. So um micronutrients are needed in very small quantities. Most of our soils have sufficient amounts to support crop growth. But as Dan said, there are isolated cases where um, those micronutrients may be needed. And a lot of times the soil might have sufficient amounts, it's just not available because of what I mentioned previously, the pH. So um, those are things that you need to consider.
1: So there are a couple things here. I mean, the, I'll just kind of back this up with what Carl said, like zinc for corn. I mean, the corn crop's probably going to remove somewhere between a quarter and a half pound per acre. You know, half is generally in the grain, half is in the stover. So there's half of that that's going to go back into the system. So you're not going to see, um, you know, I should say not remove, but take up a quarter to a half. Uh, the other thing too is um, with tissue analysis, a lot of times, you know, this isn't a tissue analysis talk, but a grower will get back these low micronutrients And I think a lot of times it's a macronutrient issue because what we see essentially is uptake of one nutrient isn't necessarily alone, doesn't happen in a vacuum, you see it affect the uptake of others. So if you impact growth, you may impact the uptake of plants growth, the uptake of other micros. So the big thing is just make sure you're correcting the right thing on that and don't get too crazy because you know, particularly with the micronutrient packages, they can get pretty expensive and we see a pretty poor return.
0: Any last words from the group?
1: Well, I just want to reiterate um uh, just when you're getting a report back, just don't get too much. I mean, this said it's it's really I think the easiest way to do it is to kind of simplify things down and get really only what you need because it can be really confusing if you get too much on a soil test report. So that's one of the things. And you've got other people saying that, well, you need to do X, Y, and Z, or you need these these um this to run this particular test because of said reason. I mean, you really want to make sure that what you're running is you can And I said this also before is that you can get actually um, you can actually get some recommendations for it, and that's the thing. The thing I struggle with is when I get a call from a grower that had a test run that wasn't a standard test. Now they're trying to interpret it, as it becomes fairly difficult to do that with some of our recommendations. So it's just always good just to know what you're running and uh, just make sure that um, it's applicable for the region that you're trying to grow a crop in.
2: Yeah, and the last thing I'd like to say is that the best recommendations are going to come from research that's conducted locally or regionally and that's where where you should be getting your information from
3: and i'll just wrap with don't overcomplicate this it's it's not it's just simply not that difficult for the the vast majority of farmers
0: all right that about does it for this episode of the nutrient management podcast we'd like to thank the agricultural fertilizer research and education
1: council AFRIC for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening.